Good morning, everyone. What a great crowd is just, you just look great this morning. I just, I don't know. Uh, You get up and uh, one of the things that the season I'm in right now or have been, many of you know, we've been writing Uncommon and working on that for the last, since January, probably one of the busiest times in my years of ministry of hours and everything. But one of the things I've asked the Lord and the staff to be praying for me about in Jan is I want to have joy. I don't want to do all this and not have joy. And there are times, I get it, where it doesn't seem that way. But man, I want to have joy in all this. And the Lord's helping me with that. Man, is he helping me. We started a series last week, many of you know, called Mosaic. I don't know if we have the, there it is right there. The logo, uh, I appreciate Josiah just, just came to me the other day going, you know, our, our, our logo is a mosaic. It's those broken pieces that our lives are, and then all of a sudden in the middle of our life comes this cross that begins to be the bridge to those broken pieces coming back together. But the reality is, as many of you know, our sign, uh, our logo, or our name, renovation, comes from the word renovare, which means in Latin means to be made new, to bring vigor in life. Our logo comes, normally when it's, it's color, if you see it elsewhere, is a construction sign. We're under construction here. There's a sign we put up when we first moved in here. We are under renovation. That says, pardon our mess, we are under renovation. And that's kind of how we're still living it out, folks. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So the other day, it just struck me that, that our sign itself was a mosaic. And I asked Josiah, and as great as he is, he was able to put some pictures on there. I love the pictures of the mosaic of who we are. And it really has to do with who we are here as a church. And we're going to be talking about it over this next many weeks, that mosaic. Today, I'm going to talk to you about intergenerational. Next week, I'll talk to you more about marriage. And the week after that, about parenting. Uh, then the week after that, we'll talk about singleness, of the mosaic of who God brings together inside of a group of people to move that thing forward with power. I love the one up there. I, I asked Josiah, I said, I want to make sure I'm understanding this. The one up here, it's on, kind of on the left-hand side, the second one down. It's a nest. And I thought, that's a nest. And I said, what does that mean? He said, empty nesters. That's, there you go. Empty nesters. How many empty nesters do we have in here? There you go. But it takes all of it. I was very fortunate. Grew up in a little town in Arkansas. Uh, many of you would think it was unfortunate, but it was very fortunate. At the time, I think our population was 300 and something. Not 1,000. Uh, 300 and something. Uh, my graduating class was 11 people. But I, my graduating class, I was in the top 10 of those 11. Just want you to know that. Just so you know who you're messing with today. I wouldn't trade that for anything. I didn't know any better growing up in a small town like that. I thought everybody got to live like I got to live and getting connected with people like we were connected. Not only was I a part of a, a large family, especially on the gentry side, my grandmother and grandfather had 12 kids, and the, most of them didn't learn from their grandparent. I mean, from their parents, so they had a lot of kids too. And 59 grandkids she had, and then 110 great-grandkids. So I hung out with a lot of people. We had family reunions. I mean, they were reunions. Now, there were people coming from all over that part of the country. Most lived in that part of the country, in Arkansas, Texas, 
area. But I got to grow up in a town where you just knew everybody. And, and I was, my dad had a great vision for baseball there in that town and a lot of different things. But one of the things I got to do, because my brothers are six and eight years older than me, there's six kids in my family. I'm the fifth one, six years below the fourth child. So I was kind of the baby boy for 12 years. Then my little sister came along for whatever reason and blew all that up for me. And she became the baby. And so my mom and dad had kids in their home 45 years. 45 years of raising kids. 45 years. Yeah, most of you just moved and not to, you would have just not told the kids you did. You just moved. But it was awesome. It's still awesome. My fam- I love my family to death. I mean, we're still close. One of the things I got to do as a kid was to be the bat boy for all the baseball teams my dad coached. I remember riding around the back, the back then. You'd got arrested nowadays for it. We'd ride around the back of a pickup truck going up, picking up boys in dirt roads in the back part of Arkansas, picking up boys because their parents wouldn't come to the game. But my mom and dad would go pick them up. And I would sit in the back of that truck with those boys with no camper shell on it in a lawn chair that would collapse. Okay, that's how ridiculous that was. That's the truth. Crazy what we would do. But we did. I just thought everybody grew up like I did. You go to the basketball game, and I played basketball from 7th grade through 12th, fortunate enough to be pretty decent, my, especially my sophomore through, started sophomore through senior year, very fortunate to be decent at it. But in those towns, when 300 people, at, at, at maybe a population, but when, when a game happened in that town, there was five, six, seven hundred came to the game, though. It was awesome to be living in that kind of environment. But one thing you better be ready for, when you go to the general store the next morning, they're going to critique you. <laughs> You're going to hear from everybody. But I love that. Being raised around all the generations. Those generations speaking into my life, challenging me. But me learning, me hearing the stories of their lives. Tell us another another story. And of course, a lot of them may be exaggerated. I get that. (laughs) But there was something about that. You know, churches in America, we're losing about 3,000 churches in America. If you know, every year, 3,000 churches are closing in America faster than we can open them. Faster than we can start new ones. And we've got to come to the understanding in, in America, especially in the church world, that, that uh, people are not coming back to church like they used to. That they leave after high school and most of them are not coming back. And there's reasons for that. I'm going to address that today. But one of the things is that, is that we're just seeing them not return anymore. And for us, we just say, we'll just keep doing the same thing. Just keep doing the same thing. But they're not coming back, are they? Maybe you were part of the churches around. You say, well, look at these mega churches around, but the numbers themselves across the board in the side of the Christian church don't reflect what we wish we could reflect. Now, outside the U.S., that's a different story. One of the biggest reasons church growth has stayed steady over the last many decades, I believe, is because people are living longer. It's the first time, I think think it's Reggie McNeil says, and I'll use his illustration here in just a minute. He says, the first time in in the history of the world, six generations have been above ground at the same time. (laughs) I like the way he says that. Six generations above ground for the first time. But Scripture commends us in in Psalms 145.4. One generation commends your works to, to another to tell of your mighty acts. It is to tell the story of Jesus. We're to hand this off. Reggie Manil talks about in the rise of the generational culture. 
And many of you could, uh, we'll teach on that not too long from now, I think, we'll see. But he called in his book, The Present Future, The Six Tough Questions for the Church. But he talks about the rise of the generational culture. And he goes through the six generations. I don't know if we have a slide. We'll just leave it up there for a little bit. I'm going to talk through it a little bit. But, but the first one is this, the seniors. Tom Brokaw calls it the greatest generation. This is the generation that was so compelled, not by their own needs, but by the needs of mankind, that they had to go to war. They had to work, drop everything else they were doing. They were called the greatest generation. I'm going to ask if you are in that. I don't know that we have anyone because you had to be born 1925 and back. Do we have anyone in here today that was born in that window? And if you are, would you please stand? I don't think we do. Okay? But the greatest generation, these folks had grit. These folks had grit, man. They fought through it. When it was time to give up, I, talk, I tell the story to my dad all the time about laying on the battlefield for four days after he was blown up in, 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 at, the, at, the, uh, at the Abbey of Monte Cassino in Italy in 1944. Uh, I can't imagine working your way back from the, from the front lines all the way back to live. Four days on the battlefield. Grit. I watched my mom and dad live it out. Grit, man. They overcame and overcame. My mom had polio. They overcame. That's all they knew. They lived through the Great Depression. My dad was running a team of horses at eight years old. He was the main income for his home. I watched my dad and mom. Man, I learned a lot from them. They had grit. They didn't make excuses. Everybody can quit, right? Everybody can quit. Everybody can quit. Then the builders. A whole lot like the the greatest generation They knew what it was like, many of them, to live through the Depression. They knew what it was like to work hard and save money. They were great savers. They really built a great foundation for us as a culture when they came through. They were the builders of buildings and highways, and they were the builders. I'm going to ask in here if you were born from 19... 26 to 1945, would you stand this morning for us if you would do that? If you can stand, would you stand all around the room? Please stand, please stand. Thank you, guys. Thank you. But then come the boomers. I is one. And man, were we pretty arrogant. Would all the boomers stand, please? <laughs> 1946 to 1964. Let me tell you, boomers, I've told you this before. They stay standing. I, I, I want to talk to you, okay? No, no. I, I want to tell you this, boomers. Let me say this to you. Uh, renovation, renovation, if you came to try to find retirement and hide at a church, this is the wrong church to come to. We're going to push you. You're going to have more time on your hands. You're going to have maybe more finances. You may find the greatest part of your ministry you've ever had is in front of you, not behind you. And we're going to challenge you. We're going to try to equip you. We're going to try to put you in place. But you've got to trust us, and you've got to step forward. We're going to challenge you to do that. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Let me say this about boomers, though. In defense of the boomers, because it was the boomers who 
through the 60s, especially the older boomers. I was only six or seven, so I don't take credit for it, but I was part of the 70s. I was part of the 70s. It was so messed up, okay? But let me say this about boomers, which is an interesting fact. I've tried to look it up again, but this was stated by Reggie McNeil, and I, I haven't found it, but I think it's worth saying. For, for the builders to stay middle class, and that was the generation before, it took 42 hours of work. For boomers to stay at the same stage, it takes 90 hours of work per week. If you don't think that doesn't change the landscape of culture, almost twice as, over twice as many hours to stay at the same level, what is considered middle class, has a huge impact, huge impact on a culture. And who raises them? Why do we wonder why both parents have to work along the way? Because it takes that just to stay even for many of them. Not maybe just because they choose to. That's part of it too. And a lot of different things. But it's interesting that it takes that. Then we come to the Gen Xers. I'm going to ask all of our Gen Xers to stand here from 1965 to 1983. There you go. Good job, guys. Thank you for being here. Yeah, you're the generation that the boomers called slackers, just so you know that. No, go ahead, sit down. Sit down. Yeah, unfortunately. And unfortunately, that's what we called you, but you didn't ever hear it. We were trying to hide that from you. But it's not true. Here's what I love about Xers in many ways. Xers watch the boomers. Xers watch the boomers and said, I don't want what you're doing. I don't want to work myself to death so I can just retire out there. <laughs> so I can live life after I'm 60. The extras said, no, we're going to live now. We're going to figure out how to work this thing out. We're not going to put ourselves through 80, 90, 100 hours a week. We're just not going to do it. And so what did boomers say? You guys are slackers. <laughs> They're just going, no, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live the way you guys lived. But here, let me tell you about these guys. They also lived in the more broken homes in this generation than anybody else had to deal with. Because in 1969, it was the first, California was the first state to start no-fault divorce. By 1979, all 50 states had no-fault divorce. It was devastating to our culture. And the extras got caught right in the middle of it. Along with, guess what else started showing up? MTV. Cable TV showed up, Right? which drives us along with the boomers. The boomers really started driving themselves inside the home if, as it got a little older, but especially extras began to go inside the home because there's air conditioning, which we didn't used to have. There's cable TV, which we didn't used to have. So we drive ourselves further and further in homes. We don't speak across the fence to our neighbor anymore, do we? We drive ourselves inside further and further and further, isolated. 1984 to 2000, let's see those millennials stand up in here. Let's go, millennials. There you go, yeah. Great group, there you go. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. Digital. Multitasking. Man, you guys grew up when things were taken off. The information age was just blowing up. The internet, email, cell phones. You say email, that's old. Well, that's, it was all happening through there. 
And probably your generation is going, man, and my generation is looking at you going, how in the world are they ever going to navigate that? Not until we get to those who are Gen Zers did we realize millennials had it easier. Let's see the Gen Zers. I don't know if there's many of them in here today. Let's see if it's the Gen Zers. One, two, three. There you go, guys. You know. There's a lot of uncertainty. They're a lot like boomers in this sense, is that they are born after 9-11. They're born with the idea that terrorism is on the loose. Many of the boomers, we lived under the Cold War. There's this uncertainty. But one of the things they deal with, obviously, is connection and community without real connection, without touch, without being close. We're connected everywhere, but reality is maybe not in the way we think we are. Lots of information, but not a lot of truth. Tons of information. And what happens to the Zs and a little bit with the millennials is that because you have instant information, you don't need mediators. You don't mean mentors. You don't go around and go call your mom and dad. You don't look up older people because you can just go to somebody else and get that information. So it begins to tear down this connection from time to time and place to place. We talked about it a few months ago in Shadows and Light. One of the most depressed and anxious generations is Gen Zers. They're much like the millennials and, I mean, the, y, uh, the, uh, the Xers in this sense. There's a high rate of divorce amongst this group of people. And I said to you last week, if you want to cause insecurity inside of your home, if you want to cause insecure children that deal with depression and a lot of other things, make sure your marriage is insecure if that's what you want to hand off. Make sure your faith is insecure. Make sure you're not sure about the whole thing. Your children need security, and it starts with you, parents. Throughout biblical tradition, and the majority of history, other communities of faith have included all ages together. The church was not just multi-generational, it was intergenerational. And there is a difference, folks. There's a huge difference between being multi-generation, like I just showed you, and intergenerational, like we're striving to be at Renovation Church. There is a huge difference between these two, and don't confuse the two. You've got to have multiple to have intergenerational, I guess. But, man, but just because you have multiple doesn't mean you have intergenerational. That's, a, that's for sure. And unfortunately, nobody believers is more than one generation away from extinction. You see churches dying around this country, closing their doors. And I believe part of that reason is they forgot this part. 
Judges 2, 7 and 8, you go, is he going to use any scripture today? Yep, I'm going to use some. Judges 2, 7 and 8, then Judges 10 said, the people served, this is Joshua with, with the Israelites, but it's interesting here in Judges, says the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua, through the lifetime of Joshua, and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. After that, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. How does that happen? Well, Christine Kane says this, and I think many of you would probably agree with this. She said, they had seen the miracles of God, countless signs and wonders and winning so many victories, but somehow or another, the next generation didn't get it. By God's grace, they had defeated the Amalekites, crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, seen the walls of Jericho come down, and even seen the sun stand still. Yet after all of these miracles that showed the power and provision of a mighty God, the next generation, an entire generation, did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Irving McManus goes on, as many of you know, we talked about battle already, the, the message a few months ago. He goes on to talk about it in this sense. He said, that trust in God is just one generation away from disappearing. What the generation before you did will not strengthen your faith the way what your generation does. You have to step into the challenges in front of you now. You have to decide this is your fight. You don't have to, you don't have to face any, if you don't have to face any battles, you don't know how to learn to trust All the battles were fought for them. Somebody else fought them. And we thought we were doing our children favors by doing everything for them, by controlling them, by doing it all. In most churches... Segment their ministries by age, as you know, children, then all the way up to the teen group. And they're geared toward generational preferences and and so on and so forth. We make decisions based on that. And you begin to wonder, how did we end up here? And, and, And I did a little history on this, and just hopefully it'll help you a little bit. In the 1940s, Obviously, the world was coming apart in many ways, and the world was finally being at least kind of put back together, a little bit of security after 1945. The church was looking around going, wait a second, we're not offering much to this group of young people, these teenagers. So because there was not much attention being given to that group of people, teenagers, Things like parachurches began to pop up like Young Life and Youth for Christ and began to focus their attention specifically towards youth. As time went on, uh, and reality is the Church of the Nazarene had been doing it for a long time before that, but they became what we would call NY or Nazarene Youth International in the 50s really, began to have NYC, Nazarene Youth Congress, which was overseas many times. Actually, in 2019, it's actually going to be here in Phoenix with six, 7,000 teens coming from across the, the nation coming here. But so there's this focus on young people. 
In the 1970s, it became even more focused. We hired youth workers, youth pastors to do youth ministry. And what unfortunately began to happen was we began to, we, and I didn't get in until the early 90s, we began to build silos. It was an add-on to the church. It became its own entity by itself. Instead of just having a pastor of the hurt church, we had to have an adult pastor and a youth pastor, adult worship team, a youth worship team, adult mission trip, a youth mission trip. And I will say this, some of those are good. There's places of training. If they're specific and intentional, they're great places for that to be trained out and people get a chance to learn and grow together. But there's a great danger with that, right? Kids graduate high school. And we say to them, you're on your own. We showed you how church was done in youth group. We showed you how church was done in young life. We show you how, but we're not going to show you how it's done overall for the rest of your life. So now all of a sudden they've graduated out of high school and there's no preparation. They go off to college. They don't know where to even go look. Because they've never been a part of an intergenerational. They've never been a part of big church. They've never been at the adult table. (laughs) Devastating. With good intentions, I would say. With good intentions. And one of the biggest statistics that has overwhelmed me over the last many years, and many of you have heard me talk about it before, that they are saying, and some would say even way higher than this, but I'm just going to go conservative, and this is from a Fuller's uh, research called Sticky Faith, that they are guessing, that they're estimating, this is conservative, that 40, for, 40 to 50% of seniors who graduate from a local church are not coming back to church. Used to, would say, well, they'll just leave, go to the wild oats, go to college, get a testimony, come back, get saved, those kind of things. Okay, then, they, then they'll come back but they're not coming back. Somewhere along the way, the world changed. That should hit us like a ton of bricks. It should devastate us in the sense, it should wreck us, that's the right word. It should wreck us. And asking the questions, why? Why? Fuller goes on to say in their study on sticky faith, it says that contrary to what is widely assumed, more than any other participation variable measured, in other words, there's different things that you could do, the number one reason high schoolers stay in college after they leave high school is because of their interaction with other age groups. Number one, that they are part of what's happening here on Sunday mornings, not just an add-on. See, we believe that renovation should be a place where a 16-year-old and a 36 and a 66-year-old and an 86-year-old can have conversations. We believe that to the depths of who we are. If you watch 25 years of ministry I had, or 25 years I've been in ministry, mostly working with, biggest part of that working with teenagers, we were intentional about making sure those generations connected the best we knew how. But if it's not a vision for the overall church, it's limited. 
There's a huge advantage of being in a smaller church many times. What we'd call a smaller church when you compare us to the landscape that's out there right now. There's a huge advantage, and one of them is part of the intergenerational. You don't try to stay small for that, but I think you grow into it. But if it's a value, you'll, you'll put a worth on it. If there's a worth, there's a cost to it. That means you're going to have to do something. So it's important to us. We've got to assimilate children and youth and all ages. Not for someday, but for today. So how do we get there? Let's run through a few things. Things I think, as I look through these studies and from my own experience, the number one thing, I, not number one as in order, the one I'm going to talk to you about, how do we get there? One is you've got to walk across the room. From day one, you know I have, hammered, I have beat that drum till you're sick of me beating it. But you've got to walk across the room, man. Go say hi to somebody. Go introduce yourself and say, man, I have never met you before, and you may have been coming here 10, not 10 years, maybe, maybe some have, but four years since the church opened, you may have been here since day one, but I've never met you, and I'd like to introduce myself. The reason why we wear name tags at renovation, most of you know, is not because we think they're cool, which they are, but outside of that, because we, we put a little effort into it, right? If you're going to value it, put some effort into it, okay? Not just any name tag, one that's got some cool logo stuff on it, Okay. But the biggest value, as most of you know, is we were trying to remove a layer where when you walk across the room, there's already a name there. There's a place where they were born. We're trying to remove a layer because we believe it's critical if we're going to be intergenerational that you walk across the room and introduce yourself and ask someone. But what if you, what if, what if some of the older folks in here, and I'm not even saying, you know, you have to be 70, 60, or 50. Let's say you're 30. You're a little older than a, than a, than a 15-year-old. What if you just walked across the room and just ask a teenager, you know, introduce yourself and ask a little bit about them and say, how can I pray for you this week? And next week, follow up on that. Next Sunday, look, them, look for them and say, how did it go this week in that science test? Because I was praying for you every day this week. Little bitty step. Little bitty. That makes giant waves. I would love to know that five teenage, every teenager in here, every college student in here had at least five adults praying for them. Across the room. Walk across the room. Many of you get aggravated at me sometimes when new folks have showed up. I, and some of you in here, I've chased you down in the parking lot, and you know I have. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you right now, I'll tell you this part. If you come here all the time, I'll stick around at 2 o'clock and talk to you. But don't try to slow me down right after the service, please, because I'm looking for people I've never met before. If I've met you, you're kind of on the other end of the list here, okay? <laughs> if I know you, stick around. I'll talk to you. But you're not high on my priority list. You're just not. Nothing personal. You're just not. Some of you are lower than you think you are on that list. I'm not smiling. I'm not a smile at all. No. We've got to catch a vision for this. We've got to catch a vision for this. It costs you something. Another one is this. We pull the load together. You got to pull the load together. Do you know serving together even levels the playing ground? 
whether it's in the children's ministry where we need help. You go, I don't have any children back there. I don't care. Let's pull the load together. You know, a paintbrush and a hammer, and, eat, and maybe not in both hands, but not at the same time, but, but it levels the playing ground. It starts conversations that you can't have otherwise. You know, we do our intergenerational mission trip to Arkansas. Most of you, many of you in here know we're going next month on, on uh, June 2nd through 9th. It's intergenerational. It is intentionally intergenerational. But let me say this. Intergenerational mission trips are different than generational mission trips. Boomers go on a mission trip. They want to sleep in beds, okay? And they want to get up and get the work done. They may start at 7.30 in the morning. They want to get the job done. Let's get this done. Why are you not getting it done? Intergenerational means you've got to teach a teenager who's never had a paintbrush in their hand how to paint and be patient when it's not as clean as you wished it was. That's what it means. That means they're going to be ridiculous at 1130 at night when lights out with 1045. And there's a point we've got to set the stand. We know, we, I know, we've got to make church gauge. I get that. And under control. It means that if you're going on intergenerational, if you're a guy specifically, you're going to be sleeping on the gym floor on an air mattress and taking a shower with a water hose. That's what it means. But man, sitting around the table and those who've been on it sitting around that debriefing at 1030 at night and hearing stories, story after story after story of what God is doing. You can't replace that. You can't manufacture it one evening here. You've got to be in a sweat laughing and crying and dreaming together all week long and not prejudging everything. But here's the problem. Here's Here's a huge problem we have in the church. And I love what Christine Kane goes on to say about why, why did this happen to this generation? Why were the Israelites the next generation like this? I love what she says. She says, maybe there was complacency dwelling in cities they had not built and eating the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards they did not plant. No sweat equity. Fruit without labor. I had a recent conversation with a friend of mine talking about, and he, he knows more about it, about uh, folks coming from the country of India coming to the U.S., and he was saying that not only are they known for being great workers, which they are, but it, and, and, and just thankful for everything and appreciation because the first generation that comes here, you turn a water faucet on, water comes out of it. You stop at a stop sign, other people stop at stop signs. There's order. There's a deep appreciation, but when you get to the second generation and the third generation, that seems to fade away. This may be a shocker to you. It turns out that the universe and most other people don't owe you a darn thing. They owe you nothing. See, when you receive something you feel like you're entitled to, something that's expected, that you believe you've earned, it's not worth near as much. And when you don't receive it, you're furious and possibly even get depressed because somehow or another you were entitled to it. After all, it's yours. It's already yours. And you don't get it. 
Let me tell you what I believe one of the number one joy killers are in a Christian's faith is belief that they are entitled. Because you're not very thankful and you're not very appreciative. If you have a thankful heart and an appreciative heart, you will have more joy and you know what to do with. But if you, if you believe, I love what Brother Paul used to say, senior used to say, I don't want it till you give it to me, but when I give it to you, don't ask for it back. When you give it to me. I don't want it till you give it to me, though. I don't feel entitled to it. The problem is once I get it, though, then I feel entitled. And when it comes to the church, for many of you, you walk through these doors many weeks, and you're not potentially not even contributing near what you could. That's the truth. Financially, time-wise, or anything else. You walk through these doors every week and expect somebody to put on a good show up here give a good message, and by George, there better be enough donuts. By the way, the donuts are going away, so some of you are going to be mad next week or the next two weeks because we're doing away with the donuts because you feel like you're entitled to it, right? You're going to be depressed. You'll be sitting here the whole deal going, boy, they should have got me those donuts. Where's the donuts? I'm just thankful for Jared and Christine who stepped forward, and we have that out front out there. I am just thankful that they've made a decision to do that, to give us a gathering place before and after the service. They've stepped up and done that. Now the heat's about to take us out of that. But you know what we need? I'm just going to say this financially. We need, a, we need a front porch out there, permanent one, that has misters on it so we can continue to gather out front. And That's a different sermon. <laughs> but I love what McManus says again. He says, it is... It is not failure that makes you weaker. It is success that will make you weaker. It is not that God has made life harder on you that will make you weaker. It is when life comes at you too easy that actually makes you weaker. The journey with Jesus is not a journey where he moves the obstacles, but where he raises the bar of your life, and you are to rise above those obstacles. Amen? We've got to pull this load together. I love what Zig Ziglar, many of you know Zig Ziglar, the motivational speaker, he uses the illustration of Belgian horses. And he says the Belgian horse, one Belgian horse by itself can pull 8,000 pounds, which is pretty unbelievable. Two Belgian horses together can pull 24,000 pounds. And if they're trained right, they can pull 32,000 pounds when you do it together. And you're trained. And you're taught how to work in sync. And you're not pulling against each other. The mosaic of God's church. The last one I'll list is this. Is your transformational stories. Fuller said one of the most interesting parts about all that was where the students, high schoolers, and junior highs connected the most was when they heard the stories of their parents and other adults about what God had done. Christine Kane continues saying about the Israelites, and she's saying, is this possibly what happened? Were they not purposeful about passing those stories on to their children? Did they not show their children how to encounter God for themselves? Is it possible that we have spent so much time building our own kingdoms, we have handed off to our kids a small God? Because we can do it, especially boomers got to be careful. We pulled it up by the bootstraps. We did it on our own. 
One of the things we've challenged Uncommon, and they know it, they've got to, they've got to take points of game-changer, transformational points and write it down. You need to know where they are. You need to be able to hand those off to your children. You need to be able to articulate those transformational points and moments of your life. Handing this story off. Handing off a great big God so small in the eyes of, your, of our generations that they can no longer see him you hand off the big God I'm talking about, they won't ever be able to not see him. Now, they can choose to walk away from him. They can choose to do nothing with him. But I'll tell you what, if they're going to walk away from him, they better know. I, I want to live a life in such a way they know what they're walking away from. There was a big God they just walked away from. Psalm 145.4. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. We're the conduit. We're the connectors. I'm going to ask those who I've asked if you'd come on forward. Those that I've asked to come and help me with this illustration today. Angel, would you go down this end, please? Mary Lou, would you come? Well, Mary Lou, you start there. You start there. Andrew, you stay there. And everybody else come in the middle here. Right here, Pat. Yeah. What I love about the conduit is this. The conduit's not the power. It's the protector of the power. A conduit allows you to lay different sets of lines, different sets of wires inside of that conduit, Right? And you can protect them, and at some point they have their own junction box, and they can go off to different places. And what I love about AC or alternate current is it goes both ways, right? It flows both ways. Got a question for you. Which one of those generations there are not important to you? Which one of these generations should we say they're not really that important to the whole scheme of things? Which one? Pick one. I don't think anybody in this room today, wherever you've come from, or if you've come here hard-hearted away from God, I don't believe you'd come today and say there's no worth to one of these age groups. You just wouldn't say that. But we live that way. We live that way when we walk in this room because we won't walk across the room. We won't choose to serve. We won't pull the load together. We won't give. We won't give up our time and our finances. Somebody else will do that. I'm entitled to it. Let me tell you, your joy is being stolen. Let me tell you, you hang out with people like this, you walk life out, joy will blow up all around you. It'll be pouring out of your cup. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. But when you put a worth on something, you've got to put a price tag on it, right? What's it going to cost me? And when you say worth I just hope it costs somebody else. No, it costs all of us. Because it's worth it. Intergenerational is valuable to us. We've put a price on it. We're going to pay the price the best we understand. But you guys have got to help us. It's not a value if you don't put a price on it then you've got to figure out am I willing to pay that price. And here's the question. Well, what's the price, Kurt? Depends on different people in this room, I'm going to guess. 
What's it going to cost us to do something like this as a church? My question is, what's it going to cost us not to do it? The cost is there. We just get a chance to do something about it this way. There's going to be a point. I'm going to talk to some of you younger ones right now. Zeers, millennials, and many of you are doing it. But I love what McManus says, and I know I'm paraphrasing here. He says, there is a point. There is a point you have to leave the village. You have to leave the village that has been protecting you. Those people have been on the front line for you for a long, long time. But there is a point where you have to leave the village and take up your sword and take up your bow and arrow and take up your javelin and get out there and get in the fight. It's a time, and I think the time is now. Not someday, it's now. It's now. And we do it together. But if you come to church for you, if you really do, I hope. Now, let me say this. There is a season where you need to. Some of you got to get healed. Some of you got to fall in love with Jesus. And we want to help you do that. Some of you need to come here. And you're broken. You need to be healed. And we're trying to figure out ways to help you get there. We genuinely are. But there's a point. There's a point. It's time to take up your own sword. We've talked about it a lot here. We want to put a weapon from Nehemiah. And the story of Nehemiah has put a weapon in one hand, a weapon in one hand, and a tool in the other. And that's how this is going to work. Thank these guys for coming up. I'm going to ask Josiah and him to come on up. We're going to close. We'll close. I want to close with 10,000 reasons again, or maybe how great thou art, or just pick any song. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> but you know, one of the ways the church through the centuries, you know, one of the things that makes the church unique, the Christian church unique, is the singing. It's commended, it's, it's throughout Scripture. I love when we talked about it a few weeks ago during. Passover and, or, or during uh, uh, Good Friday, I think it was, maybe the week before, when Jesus went to the garden, when he just finished washing the feet or, or having the Last Supper, they sang a hymn together before they went. I thought it's interesting that that's just thrown in there. And they sang a hymn, then they went. I think one of the things that would change this church is if everybody in here sang at the top of their lungs the best they could. We'll play it loud so we can't hear you, if that's, that helps you, okay? We'll play it loud. And I tell you what, I love the fact that people are creeping closer and closer to the front. It sounds different up here. I just want you to know that it really is, and some of the reasons why you've stayed in the back. But I'm just saying, I, I encourage you. But we want to close. You guys just pick one. Anybody have a song they want to sing? Give me, give me a boat here. No, no. I'll let Josiah vote. Here we go. How great that word it is. God bless you guys. Stand with us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you today for just a great day. It is your call in our lives that changes us in order to be a conduit to others. We are to be the protector of the powers. You are the power. Lord, let us be that conduit to flow wherever we go. 
But Lord, let it start in here first. So when people do come and visit renovation, they'll be able to say, man, look how they love one another. Lord, thank you for this time. Let us sing at the top of our lungs and praise to you. And thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.